More than half of all companies globally are family-owned or operated. Family businesses contribute 70% of the world's GDP and account for 65% of jobs. Their voices are important. Their stories must be told. Brought to you by the award-winning publication, Tharavat Magazine. This is the Family Business Voice with your host, Ramya Elagami. On this episode of the Family Business Voice, we welcome Tom McGuinness, Global Leader of Family Business at KPMG Private Enterprise, and Andrea Calabro, Professor of Family Business and Entrepreneurship at IPAC Business School. Together with Tom and Andrea, we discuss the findings of a global report by KPMG Private Enterprise and STEP Project Global Consortium, The Regenerative Power of Family Businesses, Transgenerational Entrepreneurship. The report surveyed over 2,400 CEOs and other leaders from top family businesses across 70 countries and territories. Using this extensive data set, the report outlines three dimensions that underpin multi-generational family enterprise success around the world. Enjoy this episode where we explore these dimensions together with Tom and Andrea. Welcome everyone back to another episode of the Family Business Voice. I'm joined here today by Tom McGuinness and Andrea Calabro. Welcome. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Thank you. We're going to be talking about a very exciting topic today, gentlemen. We're so excited to hear about the new KPMG Global Family Business Survey uh, just getting published last week. And with so many interesting data points, we will not be able to cover them all in this one episode, I'm afraid. But let's start at the beginning. Like, we'd love to know a little bit more about, first of all, what was the impetus of this survey and who collaborated on it? Because I think that's actually the exciting part of it is really how it came about. Thank you, Ramya. So we are very happy about the results. And it's not the first survey that uh, KPMG, Private Enterprise and Step Project Global Consortium are doing together. It's now a a three-year partnership that we have in cooperation. uh, And we have developed previously also other surveys. The process is, uh, I would say, it's very demanding, but at the same time also engaging. And uh, it's a learning process uh, because we bridge together in this partnership, let's say, research and practice at the same time. And what you see in the final report is really uh, the the end result uh, to get this global report. But there are a lot of uh, steps and the process uh, that uh, we have to follow, that we follow together. And I think that this is also the most interesting part. From where do we get the questions that we want to ask to the family business owners? uh, And how do we do it to mix uh, research and practice together? And I think that this is also the beauty of our partnership because we have a from the step project global consortium side we have a scientific committee which is in charge of uh, spotting the highest and most relevant topics from a theoretical point of view on the research relevance the rigor but then we have let's say a, a test that we do with our kpmg team in a cooperative and collaborative way so to say that um, it's not only highly theoretical and rigorous but it has to be a 
relevant research question also for practice. And this is, I think, is a double-sided learning process that we do. Uh, in this year um, survey, we wanted really to also uh, continue the story of the previous global surveys that we did uh, during COVID-19 and also previously before COVID, actually. So this partnership has really been running in the pre-COVID COVID and now hopefully post-COVID, uh, let's say, uh, environment. And it gave us also several, uh, I think, challenges, but also opportunity to explore more. Yeah, Andrea, I completely agree. I mean, we collaborated a great deal during the process, you know, sense checking some of the data that was coming out of the survey, but also thinking about some practical examples as advisors when we have discussions with clients. And maybe just to give you one, one concrete example, Rami, right at the beginning, a lot of the report is about the next generation and how the next generation is, you know, being planned for succession. And of course, you know, one of the things that we hear from talking to our clients is, is that the pandemic has kind of accelerated succession planning because the founding generation has been reminded of its own mortality. And of course, that next generation also has some very different values, perhaps, from the founding generation. And so a lot of the discussion, both in the report and then outside of the report with clients, is around those values and particularly around topics like ESG, which is obviously a very hot topic at the moment for family business. Tell us about the biggest surprises in the outcome of this particular survey, of this year's survey. Like, what were highlights for you where you were like, well, we did not see that coming. We did not expect that. The thing that I was both surprised and disappointed about, if I'm honest, was the still low percentage of chief executives of family businesses who were female. So it was still under 20%. And when I think that, you know, many of the family businesses that I talk to, the boards of those family businesses are still predominantly male. And therefore, I think a big challenge for the family business marketplace is to really embrace the diversity and inclusion agenda and take some, you know, really positive steps to improve the representation of women on the boards. Yeah, if, if I can um, build on that, this was also for me and for uh, the research team at Step Project Global Consortium, also a surprise and also a bit of disappointment, if I can use that word, because we were really expecting to get a higher threshold. And being still close to the 20%, it really signals that uh, there is a lot of work that needs to be done from both the research side, from both the practitioner side, but also probably policymaking because the issue about so women still facing glass ceiling to get on the top position is across organizational types. But uh, what I can say from research, we are also expecting that uh, family firms for women could be some uh, uh, types of uh, privileged arenas because of the family relationship 
relationship. In reality, and I do some other research on that, it seems that in most of the cases, it's more like a golden cage than something that gives more freedom to those women. So this was a big disappointment, but there is one thing positive in it, because we have also many family business leaders, CEOs that belong, we see an increased percentage belonging to the millennial generations. And it is interesting to observe that in this cut of the data, we find more women leaders, more women CEOs. So this is an encouraging point. And the other point that was surprising for me, but in this case, we were not disappointed. It was a positive surprise because in this survey, we wanted really to understand more about those leaders. And here I was really from the predictions expecting, okay, the majority will be authoritarian leaders. And this is, seems that it's not the case not constant in the data. And there is more a shift in the leadership style, which is more on the transformational level. And if we combine this also with our results, we find that in the peak performers of uh, the family business groups that we have, those are usually led by leaders which are more transformational. And this was a positive surprise. Uh, and it shows that there is change out there. Something is happening. So and we are happy about that. How can we maintain entrepreneurial orientation inside the family business? How can we sort of like continue being innovative across generations, which all of us naturally struggle with that once we become multi-generational, of course, the, the founder spirit can also become a burden, can become a ghost as well for many of us. But how can we take the positive out of that and continue that culture? So before going to say what, what we have found specifically on uh, entrepreneurial orientation, just on the concept, this is a concept which was coined in academia and family business research, and especially uh, in entrepreneurship research. And then us as family business scholars, we have been connecting this uh, term, entrepreneurial orientation, with the specific family business context. So the entrepreneurial orientation is basically the strategic posture of a company, of an organization, and is made of different things. Here, we can start a three-hour discussion about what is EO and which are the main dimensions, but I'm just going to make a, a short wrap-up. So usually it's made of uh, three main dimensions, which are the degree of innovativeness of the firm, the degree of uh, proactiveness, and the degree of risk-taking. So there's three different dimensions. The first one being the attitude of the firm to invest in uh, R&D, for example, or introduce new products in uh, the market or even entering new international market. Uh, proactiveness is instead the attitude of the company in pursuing these types of, uh, let's say, objectives. And risk-taking is the degree of calculated risk that the firm is taking, which um, can be leveraged with certain amount of uh, returns for the company. But the most interesting thing for us family business scholars is when we take this concept within the family business context. And here, as scholars, we have also been making a contribution to entrepreneurship literature because we have been showing that when you talk about EO in family business, it's different because there is a momentum in the founding stage in which this uh, EO could be really, really big. But then when the second generations come in, there are a lot of other issues like psychological issues. Second generation members sometimes are scared 
to innovate because maybe they might risk in innovating to destroy what has been done. So they might be more preserving. So that's why the role of the subsequent generation for the third one on could maybe be the ones that can rejuvenate the original entrepreneurial momentum. Once we have been collecting the data and we have more than 2000 respondents this year and analyzing them, after producing the first results, we have been uh, together with KPMG and organized by KPMG, we had a panel discussion with uh, family business owners in which we confronted them with the results. And it was interesting to observe that some things were confirmed, some others were disconfirmed. And it was really interesting also to see how this concept of uh, entrepreneurial orientation and this transgenerational characteristics of it, it's something that family businesses are experiencing in reality. So it's not just a theoretical construct. There was a lot in what Andrea is saying, which, which I think you know, there is a myth that family business is not innovative when, in fact, we see lots of evidence of family businesses reinventing themselves, you know, thinking about new products and new markets, especially coming out of the pandemic. And so many family businesses are actually transforming themselves at the moment. And one concrete way that I'm seeing it is that, you know, many family businesses over the last 10 or 15 years have underinvested in technology, but are now having to invest in technology and recognizing the value of good data to help them make good strategic decisions. And some of this has come out of the risks that they took during the pandemic. So, so there is so much that is happening to change the way family businesses perform. And I've seen a couple of things you know, in practice which I think are really healthy. So, for example, you know, an increase in having non-executive directors on the board to bring a different perspective on governance from the family, but also doing things like if there is a succession plan, asking the next generation to go away and learn some skills, whether it's an MBA at Harvard or whether it's going and working for a different kind of family business in order that they can really you know build their knowledge but also their skill base and they come back a more effective leader do you think that you can see a correlation between those families that have retained i would say a high entrepreneurial orientation and their ability to adopt new technology is that actually a connection do you think where these two things have actually they're actually leveraging each other absolutely I, you know i think that one of the reasons that you know, a lot of family businesses did well, you know, proved themselves resilient during the pandemic was because two things in particular were happening. We call it the kind of historic knowledge of the founding generation, you know, kind of, you know, we've been through crisis before, we know how to keep calm, let's not panic. So you had that happening. And to some extent, that senior generation re-engaged for a while um, to steady the ship. And then you had the next generation who were more comfortable with technology and could see the value that, that technology was bringing. So you had this happy marriage taking place between the different generations, which allowed the business to stabilize, but then also, I think, look forward from a technological perspective. Explain to us the term economic wealth, because I don't think it is as familiar in practice as it is in the academic forum. 
So uh, basically this translated in an easy word is the degree of uh, familiarity of the business, which is not the correct definition because the correct definition of uh, socio-emotional wealth is the stock of affect-related value that the family, the owning family has invested in the firm. And this can be can materialize under different uh, in different ways. The first way is the degree of family control and influence that the family is exercising over the business. What does it mean? Percentages of shares of the company. There are some family businesses who have 51. There are others who have 175. Does it make a difference in the way in which families then uh, owning families take strategic decisions? Yes, there is a lot of research showing that, especially in relation to risk taking, but it's also made of involvement of the family in the board, in the top management team. The second characteristic we are looking at is the identification of family members with the firm. So here we're talking about a dimension of social emotional wealth, Sue, that it's more on identification. It means, for example, if uh, myself as a family business member, I feel that my identity is represented by the family firms itself or also maybe not, because there are also in large family businesses, family members who do not feel to have the same identity as the business. And especially when those businesses are operating in industries with which they are not comfortable with. And the third characteristics we measure in our definition of social emotional wealth is the degree of emotional attachment to the business. So this is the connection, the emotional connection between family members, but also the emotional connection of the family firm with the local community, for example, and with the society at large. There are other two additional dimensions of the social emotional wealth, which is the renewal for dynastic succession. And then we have also the emotional bonding, but we don't take this too. So we have a simplified scale, of course, for length reason in the survey. Talk to us about the generations involved, because I'm really interested in understanding whether there's a connection between how many different generations of the family are involved in the business day-to-day and decision-making and say the degree of social emotional wealth or entrepreneurial orientation. Did you find anything out about that? Some of the filter questions we have is, of course, if, uh, for example, the family business is led by members belonging to the same generation or members of different generation. And we classify them as, uh, let's say, single generation led or multiple generation led. And this is a finding we already have in the previous uh, survey last year during COVID is that, and also here we have something interesting, is that when we have multiple generation family business that are led by a mix of leaders coming from different generations, those family businesses are usually more successful. And they are usually also more entrepreneurial. So so the the degree of innovativeness, the degree of proactiveness and risk-taking is higher, even if there are some changes. So we could go a bit deeper into the data, and we hope that in the next sub-reports we will do based on this, we can dig a bit deeper, because there can be also some cultural and country-related difference. For example, if you look at Latin America, you will find probably that uh, they are highly innovative, uh, proactiveness, but the degree of risk-taking, it's lower. And this is different if you compare with North American family businesses where the degree of risk-taking will be quite 
high. So I think that also here, looking at this uh, regional differences and country differences and integrating cultural and institutional aspects, is something that we could explore a bit more in, in the subsequent, let's say, sub-reports. I do believe we can say we can now safely claim that we live in a fairly unprecedented time of uncertainty, at least within this century, and that uncertainty is the only thing that we see ahead of ourselves. So doesn't the entrepreneurial orientation question become a moot question? Is it even something that can be considered as optional or the degree of which can be considered as optional? What do you encourage your, your clients to look at in respect to that? I'm very keen with our clients to continue the sort of R&D journey, you know, to, to think about how they create new products and new propositions in order to continue to evolve. And just give you one concrete example, you know, I, I have a number of family businesses um, that are in the construction sector, and the construction sector doesn't make huge margins. So they have to think about other ways when they can generate revenue with a higher margin. So many of them are saying, well, perhaps if we create some different technology that helps us design the building more effectively, we can create that intellectual property and we can sell it to other customers. And so it creates a different kind of revenue, which is more profitable for them. I think that's a good example of family businesses kind of you know, reinventing themselves to some extent. I think the other thing is them thinking about post-pandemic, many younger people want to work for businesses which have a strong sense of purpose, which have a strong sense of serving the community. And I think family businesses have that in their DNA. So actually, they can leverage themselves as being very attractive employers in a market which is already quite demanding. So I think there's quite a lot of practical things that family businesses can do that bring out some of the points that are in our survey. Let's go back to the leadership question, because you mentioned the young people. We have to talk about the next generation because, you know, they are in line now to, to taking over millennials and Gen Zers. What kind of hard skills do you both think these young people need to bring to the table to become the leaders of the kinds of organizations that you know are going to thrive? So the kinds of organizations that combine social emotional wealth and entrepreneurial orientation almost in equal measure. What do you think are sort of the skill sets that we're looking for in our future leaders? I was in a client meeting yesterday with the founding generation and the father was saying, I want my son to be the next chief executive and I think he'll be brilliant, but I'm, I'm also worried that he'll run at this and perhaps jeopardize some of the wealth that we've created. How do we manage that? And so part of the answer, I think, is I see a big increase in family governance at the moment. You know, families saying perhaps one of the ways that we can mitigate risk is to create a family council or write a family constitution so that we can put some protections in, but not so much as to squash the EO because we want that to survive. And then I think there is a huge amount around training the individual. So, for example, in the UK, we are actually just about to launch a next generation programme in the next couple of months, which we've built in conjunction with Cambridge University. And that's a way of preparing the generation with some of the skills and knowledge that they will need to be really effective leaders in the future. But I think there are lots of things like that that they can do to equip themselves with skills that make them more effective leaders. 
some interesting things we also found in this year's survey, which was also a bit disappointing. And the disappointment was about, we were expecting more family businesses to have been already investing in family business governance, especially as a result of the pandemic. So absolutely what Tom is saying, I think it's of uh, utmost importance in order to empower also next generation member to get into this game and especially to be acknowledged and also getting accountability. And then I think that um, connecting a bit to innovation, I've seen also different companies that especially as a result of of the pandemic and the challenges they had, they realized that uh, the ideas coming from the new generation, the knowledge of uh, multiple languages, the ability to organize meetings online, now we do it easily. But uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was not an evident thing for every type of organization and especially some of the traditional family businesses. So um, probably I've seen some family businesses introducing specific types of uh, arenas in which uh, next generation members' ideas can get in, can get discussed, can get selected and then implemented. And this can uh, work, for example, as a kind of fitness studio for the next generation in which maybe they can develop a new product or maybe being responsible for developing a new market, especially in light of uh, the global value chain disruptions that uh, we have seen in different sectors and industries due to COVID. So there are different possibilities over there. But for me, the most important thing is the awareness that this change is already happening. What's next? What's the next iteration of the survey? What are the questions you're going to be exploring based on this next year? What's going to happen next? There is a bit more than the report that it's out right now, because in addition to the global report, we have also several country benchmarking reports. So it means that if you, if there is someone from Colombia who is interested in uh, learning a bit more about what happens in Colombia in uh, relation to the other world regions, people can download this on both the KPMG uh, private enterprise website, also on our website. So this is the first step, which is already there. What we are going to do is that this year, this is still under discussion, but we had a very rich data set and there is more than what we have been publishing in the report. For example, there is something very interesting about technology, technological transformation, how family business deal with this type of technology. And this is something that we would like to explore a bit more in relation to different generational types of family firms, in relation to, uh, for example, also different country characteristics. And then probably this question about so uh, talent that Tom was mentioning, this seems to be something of greatest importance uh, for the next challenges that will come. And we would like also to learn more about how family businesses are adapting to this changing environment. Because I think that uh, even if the last two, three years have been very challenging, that overall we and also family businesses have been lucky to experience that because this is modifying a bit their DNA. So those family businesses could be better equipped for what is coming next. And probably we need a bit more time to reflect and digest what was happening, 
how we have been reacting, what we have learned, and what uh, how we have to translate those things in organizational processes, routines that we can transmit to the next generation. And next generation is not millennial; that's old. So we are we have set and all the others. So really, we have to look probably in this direction. And those are probably some of the questions that we would like to explore a bit more in in the next efforts. Tom, what's your biggest sort of like wish for a takeaway for family businesses when they read this report? Like, what would you like family business owners to walk away with in terms of like tools and advice? Like what parts of the report would you love for them to really focus on in terms of what they can learn? So so I, I think one of the great things about the report is that it does provide you with these four sort of um, examples of types of businesses and where they're performing or not performing. So I would like family businesses to challenge themselves as to where are they in, in those boxes and then look at the evidence in the report, which makes suggestions about how they can move themselves from the underperforming family business to the highest performing family business, because it is achievable. And I think, you know, that's the message I'd like to leave people with, which is there are things that you can do to improve the leadership and the welfare of all the stakeholders in the business, which can really affect your overall performance. And it's not just about financial performance, but it's about all those socio-emotional performance indicators as well. Let's move boxes. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you very much, Andrea, for joining us today on the Family Business Voice. And as mentioned before, the report is available for download below this podcast and on the KPMG and Step website. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rami. Thank you for listening to the Family Business Voice. Subscribe to our channels now on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher or Spotify to be notified of our weekly episodes.